This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I think as a preface to what I have to say is that I see myself first and foremost as a psychiatrist. And my I was trained as a psychiatrist before I did history. And the reason why I did history was um, precisely because I was really curious about why we do what we do as psychiatrists and how we got to where we are. So that being said, even if I get a little lost in the history, I do want, there is a purpose to it, but I think history really does help inform what we do today. And so um, in thinking about the talk today and thinking about the history of homelessness and incarceration for people with serious mental illness. It actually has a fairly long, thinking about it, it has a long history, and that history, I think, really does help us understand better um, where we are today. Four different kind of periods of time um, that I want to go over. I'm going to probably, I'm going to try to focus uh, more on the last two periods because I think it really is most informative for the present. And so the four epics is this period before we had what we call psychiatric disease now. And so our psychiatric disease as a disease as we think about it today is relatively new. We didn't, it ha, um, and I'll talk about that just briefly. Before the 1700s, let's say, there wasn't a, a notion of psychiatric disease as we have today. Um, the second period of time is the birth of the asylum and the creation of our modern idea of psychiatric disease. What is The most important, I think, for us thinking about homelessness and incarceration, Um, and again, homelessness and incarceration of people with serious mental illness, I just want to emphasize it because this is a theme throughout the talk, um, help drive many of the changes within psychiatry. So the birth of the asylum is a good example of homelessness and, and, and the jailing of people with serious mental illness led largely to the creation of asylums at the um, um, it, in the um, first half of the 19th century. So um, what I um, last two parts are going to be on kind of asylums and the state hospitals and then and deinstitutionalization and then kind of trying to understand the relationship between deinstitutionalization and our current crisis of homelessness and the jailing of people with serious mental illness. So my just briefly uh, prior to the 18th century, conceptions of um, mental illness could be uh, a variety of ways of both attributing cause to mental illness and making sense out of it from religious ecstasy to demonic possession to humoral imbalances to a disordered body that was somehow affecting the mind but not a diseased mind Um, that because the soul was deeply involved at the, especially before we started um, the secularization of thinking about the distinction between brain and mind, so that it, generally speaking, it was thought of disordered bodies, not disordered minds. Um, so this is just to give an example of um, a demonic possession, and it's, it's from a painting from the 15th century, and it's just depicting um, the blessing of a possessed youth, and you can see that um, demon is um, being fleeing um, after he's being blessed. Um, 
And, um, and this is kind of a complicated picture, but it's just showing the four, depicting the four humors um, and a different, you know, a variety of combinations could lead to both your kind of personality, but then also an imbalance of humors could eventually lead to madness. So jumping to the, you know, to the really, the birth of the asylum and the creation of psychiatric illness, um, it's, it's a complicated history, but I want to just sort of summarize that um, in the 18th and 19th centuries um, it was when madness became a disease of the body and brain and mind, um, and so that um, we could start thinking about how do you treat psychiatric madness as a medical illness. Um, and um, this, however, though, this kind of moment required major social, cultural, economic changes that led to the birth of the asylum, which was a precondition, really, in some ways, but also of being able to classify madness and to have psychiatrists ultimately taking care of people with serious mental illness. Um, so what I want to do, just really briefly touch upon some of the major kind of social, economic, and political changes that allowed the asylum to be constructed, or the need for asylums for people with serious mental illness to even arise. Um, Western Europe and North America underwent you know, very you know, radical transformation, both in terms of politically, economically, and socially, and that not only were there major kind of revolutions in terms of like in, in Britain and the U.S., um, but also and probably more in some ways thoroughgoing was the um, Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution you know, underpinned many of the changes um, that would occur within families, within communities, that made um, asylum care in some sense necessary for the care and treatment of people who had serious mental illness. So just to give you an example, this is just showing um, urbanization in the UK. And you can just see how quickly from rural to um, urban settings, um, the world, so there's this mass migration of people moving from the countryside into cities, um, and it's a, over a fairly short period of time when you think about it. And what um, you can see here is that a similar phenomenon is happening in the United States as well. Um, and um, this um, was brought about by the Industrial Revolution largely. Um, and what it, the consequences of this has made it increasingly difficult for families to care for disabled loved ones, um, in particular disabled loved ones who had a psychiatric disorder, what we would call today psychiatric disorders. Um, so what became increasingly evident throughout the, you know, in this period of time was a growing population of individuals who were in, homeless, were um, being incarcerated, jailed. Um, and so, um, the late 18th, 19th century is um, this period of time where we have this growing social problem, but also, and it, at the same time, a reformulation of madness as being a medical illness that could affect both body and mind. And simultaneously, both in France and in England, um, you have this kind of recreation of what counts as 
therapeutic, um, and you have the creation of what was uh, of the asylum in terms of it being a therapeutic institution where insanity was seen as a, much like a disease of, like any other that could be treated and was curable. But the most significant part of it was that it was curable by what was called moral therapy. Just really briefly, um, moral therapy, and moral refers to the mind, not moral as in good or bad. Um, it's um, in terms of, it, since it was developed in France, it, um, the French term. Um, and it was, um, Philippe Pinel is most famously associated with moral therapy. And um, he was um, a Parisian physician um, and um, William Tuke in England. And what moral therapy did is it provided the intellectual and organizational um, rationale for um, what would become the asylum and then later the state hospital for the 20th century. Um, this painting here is a really famous painting that is depicting Philippe Pinel, who is supposedly um, removing the chains from an insane woman at the Salpetriere. Um, and um, even though that probably isn't really what happened, but um, it is a good image of suggesting you know, the importance of transforming what had once been seen as criminality or some form of demonic possession instead as a medical illness that could be treated. Um, this is William Tuke, who was in... Great Britain, who um, was a Quaker, who um, helped found the York Retreat, also based on very similar principles. Um, so what is moral therapy? So I'm just going to read this. Since, um, um, and so moral therapy, recreating a family-like setting, moral therapy aimed to re-educate the mad and appeal to their rationality through a humane and caring environment. Tuke and Pinel renounced physical restraints and emphasized persuasion over overt coercion in effecting a cure. Through meaningful activities, useful labor, and seclusion from the exciting causes of madness, moral therapy provided the ideological support for the creation of what would become a vast network of publicly funded asylums. What I'd like to do now is just now make a pretty big leap to the what uh, age of the asylum. So, um, and when I'm talking about the age of the asylum, I'm thinking of the period of time from the mid 19th century to the mid 1950s, where states and governments outside of the United States invested vast amounts of funds into caring for people with serious mental illness. So, throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. State mental health budgets um, generally accounted for, the, kind of shockingly, the lion's share of expenditures. Um, massive spending across the United States would create a, really a gargantuan um, network of 19th century asylums, which then were rechristened state hospitals. Um, nothing fundamentally changed except the name state um, hospital. sounded much more scientific and therapeutic. Um, and um, surprisingly, some states' budgets, uh, state hospital budget, in some states, accounted for a quarter to a third of the entire expenditures on the part of the state government. So it's really kind of a remarkable amount of funding for, a, um, for public welfare. 
And um, just as the erosion of the family and traditional forms of care had led to the creation of the asylum in the first place, the same social forces that fueled this new era of state-sponsored um, you know, mental health care helped generate you know, the need for uh, this uh, massive system of mental health care that was funded by the state. Um, and what is remarkable at this period of time is what the engine that propelled state government, state legislatures, to spend such massive amounts of money, relatively speaking, was this growing number of individuals who were insane that were incarcerated in jails, in prisons, in almshouses. And so it is has a parallel to today, obviously. Um, reformers and advocates were especially aghast at the conditions they found individuals with um, you know that you know had psychiatric disorders they were acutely aware of those afflicted with insanity were increasingly becoming homeless forced as i mentioned in almshouses or jailed given the early mid um, 19th century conviction that insanity was a disease and that asylums could provide humane medical care and treatment, it was, from their perspective, unconscionable that um, a civilized society would let homelessness, incarceration of individuals afflicted with a medical illness um, you know, to go um, un, um, you know, untreated. And so um, the most famous of these is the quote I have here is, this is Dorothea Lynn Dix, who um, is um, in 18, she began, this is from an 1843 publication, uh, a report to the Massachusetts legislature, where she, what she described as outrages upon humanity and legalized barbarity. And then, and she wrote, you know, I proceed, gentlemen, to briefly call your attention to the present state of insane persons confined within this commonwealth in cages, stalls, and pens, chained, naked, beaten with rods, and lashed into obedience. And again, this is prior to the Massachusetts funding an enormous, um, a large system of state hospitals. You're on the verge of it. But um, these types of um, you know, concerns really helped propel them into moving forward. Um, she continued, I come as an advocate of helpless, forgotten, insane, and idiotic men and women, of being sunk, into, uh, sunk to a condition from which the most unconcerned would start with real horror, of beings wretched in our prisons and more wretched in our almshouses. And so to show you how successful um, in you know, that this kind of... Um, I suppose lobbying was in some sense. You can see how this is the number of admissions and, um, and resident um, patients in state and county mental hospitals from 1831 to 2005. And that become resident within state hospitals. Um, in point of fact, um, this probably pretty closely reflected also in part, um, the rising population in the United States as well. So it's not that they were, you know, in, um, at points in time, 
they, the, you know, the number of resident, the rise in resident population did exceed um, the growth of the, um, of the population in general, but for the most part, it rain, remained pretty consistent. The um, peak of state hospital population is um, right here, 1955 or so. Um, coincidentally, it was the same time antipsychotic drugs were introduced, although I don't think there's a causal relationship, quite honestly, and pretty sure there isn't. I mean, most of the evidence pres- you know, suggests there isn't. Um, um, but we'll go into get into that in a bit. And this whole period of time is considered the period of deinstitutionalization, which I'll also talk about in just a bit. This figure here is just to show, I mean, that there does seem, I mean, this isn't the best data, so I, I wouldn't, like, um, totally count on this as being completely um, yeah, um, the you know, most accurate but it does certainly suggest that, as you can see, the um, number of people presumably with serious mental illness incarcerated certainly did decline um, with the introduction of widespread state hospitalization and state hospital and asylum care. Um, and it also suggests, again, that the increase, at, at, least, you know, at least in part, you know, may be a consequence of deinstitutionalization um, since the mid-1950s. You know, um, um, but we'll talk a lot more about that in a, just a bit. For the remainder of the talk, I'm going to focus on California for the most part. Um, and I... Do want to emphasize though that I think you know what I have to say is relevant to um, the United States as a whole. Um, California, especially since the 1950s, has tended to lead the country in certain trends, um, both in terms of deinstitutionalization, incarceration, and homelessness. Um, and so I, I think we are, in some sense, I mean, genuinely a bellwether state in certain ways. Um, I. Um, the first state asylum um, was constructed in 1853, which was three year, about more or less three years after um, we became a state. Um, and um, you can see that um, you know, as one asylum was built, the need continued to increase. Um, and um, it also, as I mentioned, reflects the growth of the state as well. So Napa was 1875, Agnews, 1888, um, Mendocino, 1893, and Patton, 1893 as well. Um, it's worth noting that the first, let's see, which ones? Um, so the only ones left, Patton and um, Napa. Um, I, I might... You know, nearly everyone, nearly the vast majority in state hospitals today are forensic, um, which underlines the you know, that um, you know, as we'll see, the way in which care has become um, serious mental illness has been criminalized. In um, but more on that in just a little bit. What I want to emphasize, though, is that um, the arguments for asylums was this growing population that there was a growing recognition of individuals that had insanity, as it was termed in the 19th century, that were becoming, um, you know, it was impossible to ignore, especially the fact that they were increasingly at risk for becoming homeless or jailed, um, and that the asylum provided the most therapeutic and humane and medically scientific way of caring for individuals with serious um, mental illness.
in the 20th century, um, uh, the first half, um, again, we have four new hospitals were built in California, Norwalk in 1916, Camarillo in 1936, and DeWitt in 1946, and then finally Modesto in 1947. I think Modesto might have been the last new one, although they're, you know, I call it now, which is, again, a forensic psychiatric institution, um, is just recently opened. Um, and there was also um, the um, one in, in the middle of the state that was also opened, you know, Tascadero, as a forensic institution in 1951. Um, but um, these institutions, though, were built at least with the belief that they were genuinely therapeutic. And um, this here is an image of the stock, one of the early buildings built in Stockton. Um, and from the annual report, just to give you a flavor of what they believed they were doing in the 19th century, the intention in every such establishment being the restoration and comfort of the afflicted, the relief of their families, and the protection of the community. It is the economy, justice, and humanity to provide at once all the appliances necessary. And of course, I mean, you know, this is an aspirational sort of statement, and the reality perhaps may have differed somewhat. Although I've, I've just anecdotally, I've read a lot of patient records, and it, it does seem like they at least tried um, in California to provide you know, humane care. Again, as elsewhere in the country, care in California state hospitals is predicated on moral therapy, and here's just a quote, and um, I kind of like the quote, so I'll read it in its full. In the moral treatment of patients, their reception and classification, their exercise and employment, their diet, cleanliness and comfort, are objects of the first uh, uh, are objects of the first importance and receive particular attention. The institution possesses an eligible and healthy situation. Plain and substantial buildings, large, airy, and well-ventilated rooms, cold, warm, and shower baths, ample space for recreation, and grounds for labor with plenty of trees, shade, and pure air. By the way, this is Stockton again. Um, and um, I think the most important thing is to at least the way that care and treatment were conceptualized is they were one in the same in a certain way. You can't separate caring for an individual as well as providing um, treatment, that they were huge overlap, and really you couldn't separate them. Um, and obviously context is like place is really significant um, where you're caring for someone as well. Um, that it has to take place within this kind of, in, within a therapeutic institution. And um, like the other slide that I showed you, California mirrors it. Um, this is showing um, the state resident population from 1855 to 1955. And again, you can see the, yeah, there's a, just a steady rise, quite rapid rise, actually, up until 1955. 19, um, the peak population in California, similarly, was in 1955. I want to make three kind of generalizations, conclusions, more or less. They're kind of generalizations. I'm not going to try to prove them all, but I think they're kind of true. Um, before we move on to the kind of final part of the story um, and to um, about 
um, homelessness and serious mental illness and, and incarceration of those serious mental illness. Um, but I think it is worthwhile kind of men- kind of emphasizing at least in that these three points because I think they're important to think about future policy too. Perhaps I don't you know just in terms of um, so number one um, is that. The play state hospitals in and of themselves actually provided, I think, humane care despite occasional, sometimes egregiously horrendous abuses. But that happens everywhere. But um, and it's an empirical question uh, that do institutions can they provide humane care? I think overall they probably did. Um, The second point I want to make is that lengths of stay were surprisingly short. We often have this image of these institutions as being these um, places where you come in and you never go out. That certainly wasn't the case. Um, They were quite porous, in fact, in terms of providing the sort of social space that people could go if they needed it and then leave when they didn't need it. Um, And... um, then finally, and as I've tried to kind of intimate already, that care and treatment remain um, remarkably holistic, focused on both body and mind. Um, surprisingly, even though we think of state hospitals as being the homes of lobotomy, of ECT, of electroconvulsive therapy, and these major pretty you know, terrifying interventions, but they also provided other kind of, they believed in body and mind. Um, so um, just to give you a little more concrete example, um, that here is um, you know, length of stay, just you know, randomly chose a couple, year, three years. Just looking. So 1941, the average length of stay on discharge was 7.3 months. Now that sounds like a long time, but um, then you know, if we really think about it, it isn't super long, um, especially for someone with serious mental illness. Um, the average length of stay in 1949 decreased to 5.8 months. And then in 1951, decreased to 4.5 months. And the 1950s, I think, was probably a golden age of state hospitals. It was after World War II. Uh, budgets had, after a long period of time that budgets had remained, um, had plummeted somewhat because of the war effort, um, there was a huge amount of building and of hiring staff so that, in fact, the 1950s provided actually quite um, a different kind of perspective on what hospital care could be, um, or state hospital care could be. Um, And then finally, just to give you (laughs) one of my favorite quotes from 1951 again, is just to underline the expansive nature of what counted as treatment. Um, Everything, this is from the director of um, state, California um, State Hospitals and California Department of Mental Hygiene. Everything done to, for, or around a mentally ill patient in California hospitals can be considered as therapy, since therapy is the ultimate purpose of everything done. I mean, it's a little tautological, but I, I think it was, they kind of believed it. The next quote, just to give you another just flavor of it, the necessity of applying knowledge to a total situation rather than breaking a problem up into small parts has long been recognized by modern science and psychiatry for many years has been fighting the tendency to disassociate mind from body in the treatment of mental illness. We now want to turn to this final epic, but I, I, though I'm not, I'm not advocating for a return to the state hospitals necessarily, but I think what I'm trying to demonstrate is that there are different ways to think about care and treatment that might be productive ways of thinking about policy going forward. 
uh, just a couple myths that I, I think is I will um, want to dispel. The first one being that um, deinstitutionalization was evidence-based set of policies based on proven inferiority of state hospital care and superiority of community care um, is not true. I mean, at best, I mean, it's partially true, but there wasn't any systematic evidence to um, you know, compare the two. Um, it was based on a belief that the community is better um, without empirical evidence to that fact. Um, that um, the what I already mentioned, 1954 introduction of Thorazine, um, it's believed that you know, antipsychotic drugs is often attributed to being the, one of the major factors of deinstitutionalization. It's a little complicated to show that it's not, but it, I really don't think it is. Most people would, I think most scholars probably would agree with me on that. And then, you know, um, finally, that the belief that deinstitutionalization is motivated by humanitarian concerns over the, um, you know, about the inhumane care of treatment at state hospitals, um, I think the real fact of the matter is, is that it was a fiscal decision ultimately, um, and that humanitarian concerns were not central. And in fact, what's fascinating to me, at least, is that the number of voluntary patients increased quite dramatically from from the beginning of the century, in fact, to the 1960s, by the by the early 1960s, 30, 40 percent of admissions were voluntary into state hospitals. Um, so, which is you know, and I think that was part of its downfall too, is that it was providing a, the budgets were um, becoming increasingly difficult to sustain. So, the major contributors to Deinstitutionalization, I think, was the fiscal crisis of state governments in the 1960s um, and politicians wanting um, to cut spending in Reagan's election in 66 and coming governor in 67. What illustrates that, you know, he was, ran on, you know, trying to decrease um, government spending. Um, perhaps one of the biggest factors is the passage uh, in 1965 of Medicaid and Medicare and then in 72 the um, SSI, and then continued economic turmoil in the 1970s. Um, this slide here, I just want to show you this, just the detail of the decline of population in California. And the only reason I put LPS here, which is the Lantern and Petrus Short Act, and the only reason why I, I just wanted to point out that while it certainly helped depopulate the hospitals. It certainly wasn't a major, it wasn't the engine behind it. And um, the Lanterman Petra Short Act is the act that decreased, um, made it legally more difficult to keep people in state hospitals um, for more than, I mean, it, it defined much more precisely how long someone could be um, hospitalized. And it was for shorter periods of time. With the institutionalization, um, this quickly led um, to the re reappearance again of um, people with serious mental illness ending up being incarcerated. One of the earliest articles about what you know, terming, calling it now criminalization of the mentally ill was in 1972. This is an article from California. Um, and um, it you know, increasingly became evident that more and more individuals were being incarcerated in um, um, jails, primarily um, following deinstitutionalization. Um, this is an, 
uh, this is a really quick and dirty and not very scientific look at just looking at how often does um, homelessness and mental illness appear and very I use various search terms um, but my um, looking in the LA Times from 1980 to 1990, um, 1880 to 1989 and the whole I mean and so it's not just to make the point that Homelessness and serious mental illness, as a kind of occurring together, didn't wasn't I mean, uh, had virtually disappeared with state hospital care and reappeared as we deinstitutionalized. This is just to show homelessness in LA County, and as we all know, has um, just in, been pretty inexorable in terms of it um, its rise. Um, and LA County being the epicenter of homelessness um, in the country now. Um, with the most recent um, homeless count, LA has surpassed New York um, in terms of the total number of homeless. Um, but even, you know, and, and also very famously, LA has a lot more um, unhoused homeless individuals than New York or anywhere else in the country as well. A large proportion of our homeless are, are unsheltered. Um, so as you can see, 48,000 according to the count. And the count obviously I think we all think is probably an undercount, especially because unhoused homeless individuals are such a large proportion of those who are um, homeless. The um, Just to show that this slide all I'm trying to show is this little number, like looking at serious mental illness and homelessness. It's important part of homelessness, but it's not the entire story. And that number is, it's really hard. It's an estimate based on the point in time counts. And so whether it could be higher or lower, I'm not sure exactly. And I don't think anyone really knows. It's probably higher, but. And um, this is just a, a complicated but it, the only point is that what it's looking at is the relationship between the institutionalization and criminalization. And um, the point being is that you see this um, line here is the um, rate for 100,000 people of, you know, who are in state hospitals and is declining. And this here is those who are being um, incarcerated in jails and prisons with serious mental illness increasing. This is a photo of Twin Towers where the um, probably 15 years ago, I think, is when they started segregating people with serious mental illness from the general population in LA County Jail, LA County Jail being one of the largest jails in the world, um, as well as in the country. I think it, it's larger than Rikers now in terms of the, both the total population as well as the um, serious mental illness population, and Rikers is the main jail in um, New York City. Um, and the thing about um, Twin Towers, it's also like the largest collection, and this is kind of a hard thing to wrap your mind, the population of individuals in this, again, I, I, I taking with a little grain of salt, but probably 5,000 or so of the inmates have serious mental illness. That is the largest number collection of people with serious mental illness in the country. And probably in, in the, it's claimed to be in the world. I'm not sure. Um, but um, And many are there largely by virtue of the fact that they do have a serious mental illness and have their you know, misdemeanors or felonies, but are, are largely driven, I, I think, by their mental illness. On a, just a personal note, and I... I've gone to the jail quite a few times, and it's you know, each visit kind of leaves me incredibly depressed and despairing. Um, I um, 
you know, I've never seen so much psychiatric pathology and untreated because they're in the jail and not in a you know, um, in a therapeutic space. And and um, is that I mean, you see patients. Um, masturbating in public, naked, um, smearing feces, um, catatonically posturing, which means they're either rigid, holding a posture for hours, or very excited. Um, And it's hard not to feel kind of ashamed being a psychiatrist and going, you know, watching all these uncared, treated individuals in such inhumane circumstances um, that um, it... Quite, I, I actually, um, it's very hard to go. This is just to show you, um, it's kind of a hard slide to read, but I do think it's worth just pointing out, and this is, again, an L.A. County jail, um, and all, it's, all I'm trying to show is you see the proportion of people with serious mental illness has been rising from um, 14%, and that was in um, 2009. It's gone to 29% in 2018, and it continues to rise. It's rising both absolutely and relatively, as you can see, in terms of the general population. I kind of, to step back and ask, okay, so what does this have to do with mental health policy? Um, Every major mental health policy since the 1970s has attempted to address this growing problem of both incarceration and homelessness um, in, in people with SMI. Um, and um, this is just looking at those from 19, the 1990s onward of the major mental health policies in California, AB, this, AB 3777 and AB 34 and, and um, 2034 were precursors to the mental health, um, mental health Services Act and helped provide the, base, the empirical basis for the and Mental Health Services Act, the way in which it's structured around what are called full-service partnerships meant to provide um, intensive treatment for people with serious mental illness at risk of homelessness and incarceration. Then um, moving on to other, um, that we have the um, AOT, um, assisted outpatient treatment, which was passed in 2002, but L.A. County didn't implement it until 2015. Um, and then most recently, um, Newsom's um, Care Court, which I don't believe has been implemented yet, although L.A. is supposed to implement it this year, as well as a number of other counties. Um, it's being staggered, I think, it, in, um, up in, through both this year and next year. Um, all of these, though, are aimed at trying to address this problem of incarceration and homelessness, and quite explicitly, and um, haven't, I think it's fair to say, have failed at least at um, solving the problem, and, it, and certainly the problem has gotten worse over time and not gotten better. And um, I think to understand that, it helps to understand um, you know, some of the um, major changes in American political economy and culture since the 1970s. Um, and um, some of these, I, they've been well documented, but I'll just briefly review them really quickly. Um, these changes have included increasing deregulation and privatization, um, draconian cuts on non-defense um, public budgets, dismantling of the welfare state, and increasing wealth and income inequality have at least provided a background for a problem of homelessness and, um, and incarceration. Um, also, though, that what has justified these larger changes have been um, the um, what uh, 
The ideological justification, at least, has been termed, you know, and I'll just use it as a shorthand, neoliberalism. I mean, it's a way of um, both economic kind of policy as well as an ideology. And um, the ideology of neoliberalism just you know, is a faith in market forces at righting social wrongs, um, that there's this belief in competition in the free market, according to this view, are the most effective moral means of organizing society, and consequently, um, you know, um, and Reagan being one of the most famous, you know, argued for contraction of government services and the deregulation and privatization of goods and services. A particular view of citizenship underpins this way of seeing, um, you know, human nature um, that um, has, um, you know, you can see this resonating through public mental health policy um, in terms of how we view treatment and the aim of treatment. Um, it provides, I think, um, that um, it, the what I'm terming neoliberalism, and many people have used the term, is that um, it's increased a focus on the individual as opposed to larger social solutions, perhaps, um, and um, focuses on individual responsibility, self-improvement, um, and individual empowerment. Um, this, um, I think, is along with this larger context of increasing focus on the individual, um, is has been um, a change in... Um, you know, increasingly, and how we see psychiatric patients in psychiatry has become, um, I think, you know, increasingly narrow in terms of what counts as psychiatric disease and its treatment, the wild success of the pharmaceutical industry being a really good um, example in terms of how, you know, both they're marketing psychotropic drugs, but also marketing a way of seeing psychiatric disease that is very much focused on uh, individual brain solution um, and a what a, you know, biological reductionism. Um, along, you know, and then along with this narrowing, there has been um, in, um, an increased separation between what we count as care and um, cure. So, um, you know, mental health policy has you know, um, um, been committed to policies that re reinforce community-based interventions, um, and it's been an intensification away from um, trends, um, you know, for long-term commitment for people with serious mental illness, um, and focused more on acute care, even if it's a year long or two years, such as AOT is usually a year and you can renew it for another year. But the idea that you can treat mental illness and if you treat it intensively, regardless of whether you're doing it voluntarily or involuntarily, it's, you're going to solve the fundamental problem. Um, and um, this, I, I think, has kind of helped sort of um, reinforce the difficulties with coming up with this long-term solution to people with serious mental illness they often become homeless and end up being increasingly vulnerable to becoming um, incarcerated. Since I'm getting close, I'm going to now conclude. I, and it be, um, I just want to say history teaches us. This is a quote from Gerald Grob, a very famous historian, um, who I admire quite a bit. Unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago. But he wrote, history um, you know, teaches us that the price for implementing ideology ungrounded in empirical reality and for making exaggerated rhetorical claims.
what I want to conclude, at least, you know, that those with serious mental illness have suffered the most um, for our ideological commitments. Um, clearly, um, yeah, um, that our commitments to you know a, a, a fantasy of how um, treatment ought to be um, doesn't necessarily match um, reality, especially as you know we see homelessness and incarceration of people with serious mental illness simply worsening over, you know, in spite of the billions and billions of dollars that we've invested in trying to solve the problem. Um, and um, I think, you know, and as a psychiatrist, um, I, I, you know, we have a particular dislike for the past, and we often believe that each new generation is smarter and more humane um, than the next, and, um, and that we possess better interventions than our predecessors. And um, while I think this conceit might occasionally be correct, um, I, I think, um, if anything, this history suggests us that the age of the asylum and state hospital observes, uh, deserves a second look, not so much as a way of solving our problems, but giving us inspiration for creating new solutions. Um, and um, what um, that I think... Um, if we can reconceptualize our current beliefs about psychiatric illness, treatment, and care, um, and I, I think for the sake of those dying in the streets, and we've been doing this study looking at um, death of homeless individuals in LA County, um, it's just sort of that I think, and I think hopefully we can learn something from this history. So thank you very much. Um. So thanks very much, Joel. So we'll, we'll, we have time for a few questions. I've got a quick one and then maybe mm -hmm. one from Zoom and perhaps we'll have one from the, the studio audience here. Um, it, I, I thought it was, really, it was really fascinating that um, sort of the, there was a contraction of psychiatry's conception of what it took to treat serious mental illness at the same time that the science itself was taken off, you know, allowing that it wasn't Thorazine that resulted in this, mm -hmm. but just as neurotransmitters were starting to get discovered and, and we were beginning to understand mental illness as residing in part within the brain. Yeah. Um, do you see that, you know, is, is that cause and effect or was that sort of a side effect of science getting derailed or misinterpreted? I think getting um, misinterpreted, I, I do think, and I mean, so much of our, especially the you know, discovery of neurotransmitters actually was fairly recent. If we think about when you know, we first discovered there were, that the neurotransmission was the kind of critical thing was in the 19, you know, late 1950s, early 1960s, and, and psychotropic drugs played a, a critical role in that discovery. But I think what, I don't think it's so much a matter of science, but how we've interpreted science and how the pharmaceutical industry has helped promote a kind of a, a simple story about serious mental, or mental illness in general, um, for good reason. I mean, they're trying to make profit. It makes total sense. But I think psychiatry has been seduced by that a little too easily. Um, so... And we have a question from Zoom in terms of um, how should public policy approach treatment of the substance use disorder as well as other mental health conditions? I think mean, that's a great question. I think it's kind of a question, I mean, that I, both for substance, I, I, I mean, I'm a, I, I hate to say this, but I'm much more, I, I know much more about serious mental illness without substance abuse, even though they co-occur 
you know, but that's part of the problem is, you know, of our kind of dividing things up in the world. But anyway, so that's an excuse for me not having a really good answer for substance abuse in particular. I do think, uh, I, I think what we need to do, though, is to refocus on what we think are the goals of intervention and treatment and maybe have a more kind of a larger perspective that treatment isn't just um, all we can do with our drugs, for example, and psychotropic drugs is treat symptoms. We're not, we're only, we're not treating the fundamental aspect of the disorder. And what we need to, I think, be thinking about is how we can address kind of the, and what I think are more fundamental questions about how we can help people achieve meaning in their lives. And um, what are the structures that we need in order to do that? Of course, we want to help symptoms, and I'm a psychiatrist, and I, um, I prescribe antipsychotic drugs all the time. But I think we need to think much more broadly than just the kind of quelling of symptoms or even providing housing. We need to think how we can integrate um, life for people who have difficulties with that. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.